Part 5 of With the American Ambulance Field Service in France, Personal Letters of a Driver at the Front by Leslie Buswell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. September 14th. Today the section and our section leader were decorated. The ceremony took place in the garden and the Croix de Guerre was pinned on Salisbury's breast. The double kiss, given with dignity and a few words of congratulation to our section by the médecin divisionnaire, ended the notable event. So we now have hanging over our mantelpiece this coveted insignia. The section is not going to move from here. The general says it is one of the most active parts on the line, and lately, although the wounded have not been so very numerous, the trench bombardments have been so heavy that I anticipate more action. Did I tell you of the marvelous escape George Ritter and Walter Lovell had yesterday? A shell dropped eight or ten yards away from them in the road and did not explode. I wonder they didn't die of surprise. I don't know what our section would have done without those two. But everything happens to George, and he still has a whole skin, thank God. No letter from America has come to me for over two weeks, which is not very stimulating. Out here, molehills are mountains and mountains impassable, and although it is of no real importance whether one gets a letter or not, or whether the letter one may get is cold or warm, yet these small and seemingly insignificant things are sometimes enough to send away sleep. I suppose the truth is I really need a rest and change. It has seemed to me lately that modern warfare means even more of a nervous expenditure than a physical one. The nights are getting cold, dark, and damp, the leaves are falling, underbrush turning, the icy hand of winter stretches out nearer and nearer, and the trials of the poilus are doubling every day. Yesterday I talked with a priest. He and most of his calling voluntarily accepted at the beginning of the war the fearful task of burying the dead. It sounds very simple, doesn't it? Do you realize what it means? It means handling terrible objects covered with blood-soaked clothing that once had the shape of human beings. It means taking from these forms all articles of apparel that might prove serviceable and searching through these red-stained clothes for any letters or identification. Some of these shapes are hardly of human outline, very stiff and cold some are mere fragments no longer of any recognizable form that is a little of what burying the dead means i spare you more detail and this is the work the priests of peace are doing in france wonderful you think no it is french temperament french courage the musician is now brancadier the artist the poet the paterfamilias of age past military obligation all digging trenches, or any work they can lay their hands upon. That is why France lives and has lived through all her agony. How often have we heard said, Poor France, she will never stand this great calamity. She will stand a hundred such calamities, and always come to the top again. Sunday. And for a Sunday, quite quiet. Of course, we had our usual bombardment, but only shrapnel. About 4.30 they started to arrive, and a call for two cars followed. I had to go to M, and on the way up there at the X I saw a horrible sight, two dead, three wounded, and a horse. A shrapnel shell, badly timed, had fallen exactly in the middle of the road and made a great mess. 
Schroeder and Willis were there, so I continued up to M, where I got seven wounded. The American mail has arrived. Letters from you, Joe, and S. A feast. Monday. Serious bombardment of three villages. Schroeder and I were at Dieulois, so for the first time missed it. It was a pleasant miss for us. Those who pretend they like to be in bombardments are either humbugs or have never been in a real one. Having experienced them more or less for four months, I dislike the sensation now as much as on my first day. It is an interesting fact that while the villages about here are under constant bombardment, many of the oldest civilians cannot be induced to leave their homes, preferring to risk death in their cellars. The other day a very old woman at Montevilla had an amazing escape. A 150 high explosive shell fell into the bedroom of a cottage where she was sleeping. The small room was entirely shattered, but its occupant was not even injured. When I saw her soon after, she was in an intense state of resentment over the destruction of her personal belongings, but her own escape did not seem to appeal to her. I heard a story yesterday which I have every reason to believe is true. I give it to you as I got it. Early one morning a soldier appeared in a boyau communication trench, near here in the uniform of a genie, French engineer, and started chatting with some passing poilus. He told them he was inspecting the lines, and they showed him round their trenches. On his tour, so to speak, he met some artillerymen who asked him to lunch with their battery. He accepted, and after lunch wandered about the wood with his new-found friends, who showed him the position of many guns. As night came on, explaining he had to return to duty, he left his friends and went to the trenches. It was now dark, and on getting to the first line he told the sentry that he had orders to go out and inspect the barbed wire between the lines. As that was in accordance with the duties of his genie, the sentry let him go. The man never returned, and as, on inquiry, the company to which he said he belonged did not know him, there is little doubt he was a German spy. Another story I heard from a friend of mine in the trenches near Soissons, and it is typical of the hopeless brutality we have to expect. When the trenches are very close to each other, a little advance post is dug so that one can hear what is being said by the enemy in their trenches. Generally, however, the distance between the lines is too great for this, and at night a soldier is sent out to crawl to within hearing distance of the enemy. One night a poilu so engaged got wounded, and when daylight came he was seen to be struggling to crawl back to his friends. Two soldiers promptly started out to help him, but on reaching him the Germans shot and wounded them, so that the three men were now crying to their comrades to come and save them. Realizing that it was death to any one who left the trench in daylight, the captain forbade more of his men to venture out before dark. As soon as darkness fell, two other soldiers crept forth, but no sooner had they reached the three wounded than an illuminating rocket disclosed their positions to the enemy and left five men lying wounded between the lines. As the captain could not afford to lose his men in this futile way, he detailed two sentries to shoot anyone attempting to leave. The five men lay there shouting to their friends, calling them by their names, reminding them of their friendship, and asking if they were going to allow their comrades to die thus without help. 
so that when two brancardiers came into the trench they found the occupants in a terrible state of anguish and nerve tension not being under the command of the captain and being red cross they promptly left the trench to save the five wounded frenchmen seven men are still there between friend and foe but at peace now god willing september twenty third on tuesday ben and willis and i went to nomeny a town some fifteen kilometers away the other side of the moselle it was a long walk after stopping to put a wreath on mignot's grave we started about one o'clock on our journey it was a very hot day we arrived at a little village which at first sight looked deserted we soon saw the reason in the middle of the road was a large hole a little farther on a pool of blood presently two dead horses a successful shell passing through aton the road goes on straight ever straight kilometre on kilometre we passed the village and famous battlefield of st genevieve on our right here on september eighth nineteen fourteen two seventy-five guns a few mitrailleuses and a handful of five hundred determined french soldiers hurled down an attacking force of twelve thousand germans again and again the upright massed lines advanced up the hill to be leveled like bowling pins after some hours of fighting the brave little band of frenchmen on the top of the hill found that they had no more ammunition so with fixed bayonets they threw the last advancing germans down the hill the latter retired to pont a mousson with some four thousand of their dead left on the hillside these they disposed of by throwing into the moselle the french lost only fourteen men apropos of this i am reminded of a possible cause for the illness of many of our boys last june half the section are teetotalers and the other half drink pignard the vin du pays which comes from the midi and which is supplied to every french soldier the water we were suspicious of so ned asked mignot to ascertain where the chef got it mignot promised to watch and see whether it really was taken from the spring a little distance from the house as we had been assured was the case imagine our feelings when he announced at breakfast the next morning that the water we had been drinking and which had been used for cooking was drawn from the moselle to continue a little beyond we came to the battlefield of nomeny of august twenty nineteen fourteen along the roadside dotted all over the field are little white wooden crosses bearing the same inscriptions ici est mort un soldat francais nombre tombé au champ d'honneur vingt août dix neuf quatorze and here a more elaborate cross a dead commandant and there a cross marked ici est mort un soldat allemand we walked on a silent trio i was thinking of a year ago of the wives and families of these heroes already almost forgotten now we came to a little village surrounded with trees on our left some kilometers away we saw the seventy-fives bursting above the germans sitting down with some soldiers who were taking shelter we watched for an hour these seventy-fives bursting foot by foot along the enemy's trenches again we started on our way and passed a hole cut in the road where a german shell had burst not long since at last we saw nomeny a town of some thirteen hundred inhabitants placed on the side of a hill and running down to the river saye where it ends as abruptly as it starts 
just a charming little town harmonizing with the surrounding country as only french villages can we made out the tower of the ninth century church and the walls of an old ruined castle the sun blazed on the scene and we stood there looking with true pleasure on this delightful evidence of french genius in combining architecture and scenery the road curved to the right for some two kilometers here nomeny is hidden from sight a turn to the left and there again it stands with its old castle but what an illusion distance had played upon our sight ruined castle why the castle walls are the only things that are not ruined there stands nomeny's skeleton not a roof not a particle of wood remains just the bare walls of the houses we arrived at the outskirts of the town and presented ourselves at the commandant's bureau a lieutenant offered to show us over the town i cannot describe it no words could adequately convey the sickening sense of desolation and desecration here are the facts the fourth and eighth bavarian regiments on august twentieth decided to loot the town camions coming from metz took away everything of value every house was burned house by house men women and children being shot as they tried to escape those who were in the basements of the houses were shot there or burning petrol poured into the cellars when the french arrived our guide was one of the first arrivals they had to bury sixty murdered civilians our long tramp home was uneventful though very tiring except when we came to the little village where we had rested and lunched with the seventy-fives bursting some kilometers away here we found two trees across the road and on making inquiries learned that the germans had seen the general's staff car going along the road did i explain that the whole length of this road is in full view of the enemy and seeing the car enter the wood and not emerging on the other side bombarded the wood and were successful in wounding the general's chauffeur yesterday we went to Hay and saw quite another thing this little village a bit larger than montauville is as completely destroyed as nomeny it is true that the church was dynamited by the germans but here we have a legitimate excuse the village was of strategical importance and the absolute destruction was done after the evacuation of the civilians the ruins look as different from those of nomeny as could be imagined no skeleton remains it simply has been destroyed by shell-fire hundreds and hundreds of shells both french and german the whole place looks as if some great eruption had occurred and leveled it to the ground whether it was necessary or not i don't know but here one gets the feeling of war and shell while at nomeny it is different september twenty ninth last monday we heard the news of the english and french victory in the champagne the shelling of the french trenches in the bois le petre had been awful all day but when the good news spread it sent courage to all the depressed so that within a short time the woods rang with cheers and shouts of a la bayonetta Today, lots of nice letters came from America. The last two days have been full of excitement, and we have been given an additional secteur to evacuate. Consequently, our section has been temporarily divided in two. Mac and I remain in Pont-à-Mousson. An attack is expected daily, and with it will come the usual heavy bombardment of Pont-à-Mousson and the main roads. At present, the rain has stopped everything, and the French and English successes will, I suppose, be checked. 
as the heavy rain will make advances almost impossible. September 30th. News came this morning that 40,000 prisoners had been taken by the Allies and that three Army Corps had passed through the lines at Champagne. It all seems too good to be true, the first great good news the brave French have had for twelve months. Rain, rain, rain all day long. Therefore, I do not expect we shall have immediate trouble here. The winter has come, the cold weather is very bad, and a night call is an unpleasant business. The other evening, when returning with an empty car, I asked a sentry whom I knew at Dieu-Lois, from which point onward we are allowed no light, if there was much traffic ahead. Oh, no, he answered, not much. It is mostly past now. So with a good night I started ahead, and six feet farther on I ran straight into a horse. October 10th. Today I saw one of the most exciting episodes I have seen since I came out here. Several German aviatics and French planes had been flying over the trenches, and so many shots were fired by both German and French guns that there were at least a hundred white puffs of smoke against the sky. About a half an hour after, three or four shells were thrown into the town, and I went up to the top floor of our house to watch them explode. A German aeroplane could be seen on our lines reconnoitering, when suddenly another plane, a Nieuport, came tearing down upon it. We gave a shout, a Frenchman, a fight, vive la France. The Frenchman was now above the German, the German in full retreat. Lower and lower dropped the Frenchman, always overtaking the German. Bang, 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 went the mitrailleuse. The German swerved, and the Frenchman was level. Now he was underneath. Bang, 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 a yell went up from us all. The German was hit. His plane swerved, right side, left side, dipped, curved, dipped, nose to the ground, a puff of smoke. Something had exploded in the machine. It was now dropping straight to the earth, and finally was lost to sight in the woods of Pouvenel. We yelled, we shrieked, we cheered. The Frenchman had won. A dull roar came from the woods of bois le thousands of French voices cheering the success of their comrade. You may imagine the excitement at dinner when George Rader and Willis, who had not been with us, marched into the room triumphant with bits of the German aeroplane. October 13th. Yesterday was a serious day for us, and I had a bit of an escape. You will have seen, I expect, that we were badly bombarded, and that incendiary shells were thrown into the town. It was a Sunday—it is always a Sunday—Gott mit uns, I suppose. Well, about ten o'clock I started off to pay a visit to a wireless friend with whom I had been learning to read. An aeroplane flew overhead, and I pronounced it to be a Frenchman. I was in the middle of the road when I heard the whistle of a shell a long way off, but strange to say, over my head. It came nearer and nearer, louder and louder. Have you ever actually experienced that inability to move which sometimes comes in a dream? I did then, for the first, and I hope, for only time in my life. Louder and louder shrieked the shell, and I just stood in the middle of the street, paralyzed. I could not move. At last, bang! And then I ran, ran like a bolted rabbit. Of course, it was ludicrously late, but luckily for me, the aeroplane bomb, for such it was, dropped twenty meters from me on the other side of a stone wall. I need scarcely say I was ragged for my inability to distinguish a Frenchman from a German, but it is not so easy as one would imagine. 
After lunch, Ben and I went to pay a visit to some of our friends in the trenches, and afterwards walked through the first line for some time. About three o'clock we heard a heavy bombardment, the shells passing over our heads in the direction of the town. We walked to the edge of the hill and, sitting down, watched the poor little place being shelled for two hours. The explosions of the German shells and the shrieking of the French ones as they flew overhead to silence the German batteries was most impressive. At last one shell came very near the house where Ben and I lived and was followed shortly after by a second, even nearer. Ben jumped up, exclaiming, "'Come on, I can't watch that any more. It is too close to our house, and I have a new winter uniform there.' We returned to our friends' dugouts about six, and had an excellent supper in the open, with stars and trees as a background, and a gramophone to provide music, six hundred meters from the Germans. The other day we took another walk through the woods further back from those I have been talking about, where the Germans were last September shell holes everywhere and old trenches marked the battle lines violets had already appeared and i picked a few and put them in my fatigue cap passing along a little wood path we came upon the inevitable harvest two wooden crosses side by side but different one cross was more carefully hewn and nailed to it by a bullet was a little piece of red cloth the color of the trousers the French infantry wore at the beginning of the war, and which is said to have cost France several hundred thousand men. The other cross was just two sticks, and hanging on it was a piece of gray-blue, a German. So here, side by side, a long way from town or village, in the silence of the wood, lie two nameless soldiers. Foes? I wonder. So the days pass. Now, with the evening, comes as often a grateful time of stillness i like to watch from my window the shadows lengthen as the sun leaves to them their part a little later when they have wholly obscured all detail man will perhaps furtively begin some move to make the night unlovely but for the moment there is rest an owl has just hooted a musty old clock has just struck six a convoy wagon rumbling along the road raises a cloud of golden dust, then silence again. Lately I have discovered a beautiful garden full of fruit and flowers where an old man still stays as caretaker. Schroeder and I go there often and eat the fruit which is spoiling on the trees. Sometimes, when the day's work is done and there is a quiet hour here, it is good to think of other gardens far away where the salt air comes in from the sea, or often the fog, on these still summer evenings. I can understand now the lure of peace, and so I am doubly grateful that those of you for whom I care most have chosen to work, rather than to forget the struggle here." When I come back to you some day, we shall feel a greater peace and sympathy for knowing that with the same eagerness, if in different ways, we have tried to serve and to save those men whose heroism makes our best effort seem a very small thing. End of Part 5 End of With the American Ambulance Field Service in France, Personal Letters of a Driver at the Front by Leslie Buswell